Today on the Dolby Institute podcast, we're discussing the music of The Color Purple. This is the new filmed version of the famous novel by Alice Walker, this time an adaptation of the hit Broadway musical, which won two Tony Awards, including Best Revival of a Musical. Joining us is the Academy Award-nominated composer, Chris Bowers, who wrote the score, as well as the film's director, Blitz Bazawule. This is another excellent interview conducted by our now regular guest host, music journalist, John Burlingame. Take it away, John. We're delighted to have with us both the director and the composer of The Color Purple. Blitz Bazawule is an award-winning filmmaker, musician, author, and visual artist, a Grammy nominee for his work with Beyonce on Black is King. And Chris Bowers is the Oscar, Emmy, and Grammy-nominated composer of such films as Green Book and King Richard, and television, including Bridgerton. Welcome to you both. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thanks, John. Blitz, let me start by asking you, how important was it for you to take on The Color Purple? It, it meant everything. I mean, first of all, you know, The Color Purple is a deeply sacred work, deeply sacred text, starting, of course, with Alice Walker's brilliant Pulitzer Prize winning book, Steven Spielberg's cinematic classic, and of course, the Tony Award winning Broadway play. So when you're called in, you are, the bar is incredibly high. Um, and so for me, it was most important that I knew or understood that there was something to add. And it ended up that the thing to add was an exploration of Seeley's headspace. Um, understanding that people who deal with trauma and abuse are often miscategorized as docile and passive and waiting to be saved, um, which couldn't be further from the truth. Ultimately, through this character of Celie, we find the machinations of her working to free herself, liberate herself from her abuser. We also see her go through her journey, her healing journey, that, that, that includes uh, forgiveness, that it includes learning how to love, who to love. So it was incredibly important that I, I treated this with the utmost importance and um, ultimately trying to find my own way into the story. As a kid that grew up in Ghana, my imagination was all I had. It wasn't much around you know, film school, cameras, musical equipment, musical instruments. Um, and so through my headspace, I found escape and I found the world through that. And so, you know, looking at Seeley, um, I could understand what what that confinement of, of the physical um, can be and what kinds of liberation can occur when you're inside your head and have the opportunity. So when did you bring Chris on board and why Chris as your composer? I brought Chris on very early and I brought Chris on early because I really believe in um my entire team uh, being on the same page right when we begin. I don't believe in silos as a, as, a, as a filmmaker. And ultimately, I fancy myself more of a conductor than anything else. You know, I, I need my entire symphony um, to start building some kind of harmony. And I can't wait till the very ending to bring on my composer um, um, when so much has already been discussed and he's coming in as an add-on. And so bringing Chris on also helped Chris understand kind of how we were 
approaching music from a macro perspective? You know, like what were the what were the intentions around these choices that then he could then expand into um, into the scoring process? And why Chris? I mean, he's the coolest cat. That's just it. He's the coolest cat you can find and uh, incredibly talented, but also understands this work uh, deeply, understands the healing spirit of a project like The Color Purple. So it was very, very easy. Yeah. And Chris, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. What are your memories of The Color Purple, either as a book or film or both? I first read the book uh, freshman year of high school. It was an assigned text. And uh, once we finished the book, we then watched the film in class. And uh, for me, it felt like, um, you know, such... Uh, as Blitz said, it felt so obvious how important the work was just for uh, our community and our culture. And I had a, an understanding through my family how important the film was. Uh, but my personal connection with it came in the form of realizing that Quincy Jones was a, a film composer because I never knew of him as a film composer. I only knew of him as a, a record producer. And so, uh, you know, hearing that score, that led me down my you know, rabbit hole of realizing that he was this prolific composer and studied with Nadia Boulanger in France and, you know, how, how uh, this man went from being a, you know, jazz trumpet player to a record producer to an, an incredible film composer, I think became uh, a huge beacon for me in, in terms of aspiring to uh, become a film composer myself and seeing a black man achieve that, I think, uh, created a really big um, uh, anchor for me in order of, in order to uh, uh, see that for myself. And Chris, can you tell us um, exactly what your job was on The Color Purple? Because you're not the songwriter, you're the score composer. And I think people I may not fully understand how those things all sort of um, come together. The way Blitz and I talked about it in the beginning was, you know, my job was to provide the, the uh, emotional glue uh, with, with the score, right? Like there's so many times where we are coming uh, out of a very dramatic moment into a song or we're coming out of a song into a dramatic moment. There are also so many times where, you know, we need to represent what's happening internally for these characters and there's no song to tell us lyrically what's happening. And so music is in that way using, um, serving as a way to help us connect with the emotions of these characters. I did do a couple of the arrangements for some of the songs as well. But like Blitz said, really, my involvement with the songwriting team extended into um, my composition process just by uh, being immersed in those songs, understanding those songs and how they work and understanding the best way to write my themes in a way that would have some sort of tangential relationship to the songs themselves. Um, and so, yeah, anytime you're watching the movie and you hear... Um, uh, music that's not accompanied by lyrics, uh, most likely that's that's music that I've composed. And Blitz, um, what kind of discussions did you have with Chris at the outset about what you felt the score needed to accomplish? It was very, very clear that we had inherited 
a, a, a large amount of music, music that spanned um, an incredibly, you know, large um, amount of African-American musical genius, starting, of course, with the spirituals that become gospel, the gospel that becomes blues, blues that becomes jazz, and then it births all of popular music after that. So um, the biggest, most important thing was, first of all, figuring how we were going to create the glue to connect all of these uh, often separated musical genres. Um, and, and I knew that, um, you know, I knew very early that Chris understood very intrinsically how the things that linger sonically between these worlds, gospel doesn't just become blues. There are elements that kind of um, still linger um, from gospel to blues and, and, and between blues and jazz, there are elements that linger as well. And so I knew that he'll very, um, very easily be able to make those connections. I also knew that we'll have to figure out a level of proximity to audiences today. And I really value that because, you know, we're making this film for audiences of all ages, but most in particular for a newer generation. And that matters. And so it was very important that, you know, we figured out elements again that have survived from those errors into now. And one of the languages, you know, um, Chris and I speak is hip hop. Hip hop culture is is ultimately youth culture and connects us. Even though Chris is you know, incredibly adept at um, you know the classical language of music, you know, and I'm not. We could find hip hop as the bridge, you know. And so you know, I could give him references like, you know, this needs to feel more like southern hip hop, like Goody Mob or Outkast. And he can he can take that and create a classical cue out of that feeling because he understands it. And if I say I need something that's like East Coast, you know, hip hop from the 90s, like, you know, Biggie Smalls or or Nas, you know, he, he can very intrinsically know exactly what I mean and turn and create a composition that is aggressive, you know, based, based on those. Then we used that language to connect some of these very complex musical compositions that are like, you know, you know, very elevated, but their sources were very, you know, very, um, uh, proximate to audiences today. Um, so that was, a, that was a very, very big thing that kind of flows all the way through the film. These two elements of creating proximity, um, you know, uh, to, to audiences today. Um, but, but, but also understanding that the score will be glue. So Chris, how did you begin? Uh, did you start by writing themes for characters or situations, or do you s sort of conceive the sound world, what it should sound like first? Uh, you know, for this one, it was, uh, kind of a bit of both. Like, you know, I wrote the, 
a couple of the arrangements for the songs first before I started writing the score. And so that started to set um, some ideas in my mind in terms of what the palette could be. Like thinking about, especially like Blitz said, how much those cues in particular really spoke to um, this imagination that that Tealy had. I think about What About Love and like there's like this really lush orchestration and this like huge, rich sound. And so I knew that that was, uh, you know, a pillar for the spectrum of where this score could could uh, exist, that, that we could, if we wanted to or needed to, go in this really lush, fully orchestrated way, because that kind of had already been established. But the other thing that actually really helped was Blitz had a uh, sketch of the entire movie that he shared with me when we first met and had temp score in there. And what the temp score really showed me was that it was it was so smart because he chose pieces that had an intimacy to them. And that was really helpful to see how these uh, intimate moments in the score would help us feel a different type of connection to these characters than these big songs would. And they also would immediately set themselves apart sonically. Um, and it also felt like it, it really mirrored where Seeley was uh, in the beginning of the film. So like the first theme that I wrote was Seeley's theme. And the first version I wrote was, uh, you know, the version that you hear in the first 20 minutes of the movie, there's a few instances of it. Uh, and that's just like a simple upright piano and like detuned banjo and, couple of solo string instruments and for me it was it, it sprang out of this this idea of of uh looking at the again the intimacy and wanting to have this closeness to her um also the simplicity of her life at that point um and al uh, and almost like loneliness to it as well while also still having this like uh bittersweet quality to it so that was like a lot of the inspiration for that cue but then i also wanted to go to the other side of the spectrum and start writing cues that had a huge, bigger sound to it and looking at Celia and Nettie's theme, that whole opening sequence, and knowing that we needed to have something that could really lift in the same way that the emotions are lifting in this story. One of the things that Blitz talked about in our first meeting was like, this is going to be an epic journey in terms of like what we see, uh, how we see this this part of the country, how we see this part of the world and being able to experience it on this on this level that really uh, matched the emotional journey that Celie was going to go on and, and this growth that she was going to have. So like the score needed to have that scope and scale as well. As well. Um, so I kind of started off with those two points, uh, something really, really intimate and something really, really lush to then see how we can bridge the gap. Um, and the, the other thing I'll say to that is that what's so exciting about being brought on so early is that I 
was able to pretty much finish a pass of the film weeks before we recorded. And so then we were able to sit back and watch the movie multiple times and say like, you know, actually we need to go bigger here. Like actually this, this, all these big cues don't feel big enough actually. So let's try to go there and like, you know, refine and refine and refine. So a lot of the cues that I wrote, you know, before while, while Blitz was still shooting lasted the entire time, but they also continued to like be tinkered with and refined as we sat with them, which is really helpful. So Blitz, can you talk about what this, I presume, quite long collaboration was like for you? Because, of course, you brought Chris on early, but then you must have been pretty busy shooting the film for a while. Did you continue a conversation with Chris through this period? Yes, yes. And I, and I, and I did that with everyone. You know, um, I, I really, again, value the entire orchestra the same, you know, and I, and I really believe that if we are all working simultaneously, then ideas that Chris is coming up with will affect me while I'm on the set and ideas that we're coming up with on the set will be affecting Chris while he works. So there aren't these follow periods where you have to guess. We could always be sharing information, you know, um, you could always see where we were going. There was always a, parts of the movie were cut together before we were done. So Chris, you could come in and watch this scene, you know, cut together and you can go, okay, I think I know where this is going and I know I, I can start working. And ultimately, it, it, you know, I love this Michael Jordan quote and I hope I'm, I, I'm not paraphrasing so wrong, but he goes, I, I never lost the game. I only run out of time, you know? And, and I, and I, and I, and I really believe that's how, you know, that's the difference between a good movie and a bad movie. You know, you never make a bad movie. You just run out of time. So, so, you know, I, I really value time and I really value us all starting ahead of time so that somewhere along the line, we can all go, all right, now we don't have to be in a panic mode. We've had time to live with the material. We know its effect. We know what can be better, what needs to be scaled down because sometimes you assume this moment requires a big lush score. Then you realize after watching it a couple times and after other scenes come in and are cut in, you realize that, okay, there's a bit of redundancy here. We're going too big too quickly. So you have to stop pulling back. And so it's really about keeping time and space. And again, I'm also, I really am very open to the entire group taking ownership of the film. You know, I, yes, I am the director and my job is to have a, an opinion and, and, and my job is to captain this ship as best as I can. But I really believe that everybody that is on my ship, um, once aligned and working in harmony can really advance my vision in a really tangible way. And so, um, I'm, you know, everybody knows they can bring an idea and we all collectively vet ideas. I mean, my editor was showing me stuff that he thought we didn't have uh, in the script. And so we'd have to go back and shoot them. And now I see the cut and I can't believe it wasn't in the script to begin with. But it's all about giving everybody ownership. And the same is true with Chris. You know, the suggestions and the ideas that, you know, he came up with end up kind of helping us and also because he was very integral to the orchestrations of the actual musical numbers 
there was a fluidity and there was a shorthand with the rest of the team. He wasn't like the, you know, the composer who comes in at the end, nobody knows. Everybody on the project knew Chris. And so there was a shorthand and everybody was very, very um, excited to hear each cue he'll, he'll bring because it always just elevated wherever we were at. Chris, you mentioned banjo a little bit earlier. There's actually a lot of banjo being played in the movie that we see. Did you write any of that? Or did you have a hand in what we see Mr. playing? Yeah, so I wrote the the, um, the Mr.'s main theme with, with Nick Baxter, one of the music producers. Um, you know, the main theme that we hear at the beginning of the movie. And then there's a couple of other instances where he plays that. Um, and that really became integral to the sound of Mr.'s theme anytime we hear it in the score, not only melodically, but there's a lot of textures. I think about the cue where he kicks Nettie out of the house. There's like, I think like maybe six layers of banjo. Some of it's just like literally rubbing the the skin on the banjo, creating this kind of like interesting texture to it. And that's been like affected or there's, you know, more detuned banjo tremolo that creates this kind of uneasy feeling and these low uh, bass hits are actually banjo that's be, been detuned by a few octaves. So, you know, that being... Uh, a sound that was associated with him. It was fun to really create this more deconstructed approach to using that instrument. Um, and I was just really inspired by the idea of making this instrument sound like something else that we we don't always place, uh, where we don't always place it. And that came also, again, from being a part of those early conversations where, you know, Blitz talked about, that's another moment where he talked about hip hop. Like he was like, I want in the very first notes of this movie where we hear the banjo being played over the logo for that 14 year old kid to be sitting there being like, Oh, this is kind of dope. Like, this is like, I kind of, I can like rock with this essentially. And I feel like that energy was so clear to me. Cause like, there's so many, like, I, I know what that means. Like he can say that. And I'm like, I know exactly what you mean in terms of what that needs to feel like. And to take an instrument like the banjo and try to bring it into this time and into this culture, uh, in that way, or bring it to this, this era of the culture, I think, uh, was so fun and, and again set the table for how I wanted to approach a lot of the score for sure. And what about the geography of of the places that we visit? I mean, we're in Georgia a lot of the time, but we're also in Africa, and I wonder if those scenes required a different approach. Yeah, I think that uh, that was another moment where Blitz's specificity is, is so crucial to this story. You know, Blitz in our first meeting again was like, "This is not Africa," like as a blanket. Uh, thing. It, it's it's a very specific tribe. We're in the Ashanti with the Ashanti tribe in Ghana, and that's where they're pulling all of their uh, clothing from in that whole sequence where they're pulling, you know, uh, as much of that tradition as possible into what we're seeing visually. And so musically, it was important for the score in that section to pull from that as well. So, you know, being able to work with a Ghanaian percussionist that uh, was going to play on that was so helpful to have that specificity because I explained to him what the scene was and how the scene was about the British moving that tribe out uh, from their land. And just to kind of give him an idea, I was just like, it's sometimes helpful for a musician to know what they're playing to. And I was so happy I did that because he was like, well, actually there's a traditional piece about that. And he played that piece for me. And then we talked about how we might be able to shape that piece into the piece that I was already writing. And so we found a way to use this traditional Ghanaian uh, piece from the Ashanti tribe 
to you to to score this moment uh, about their experience, which for me again is like uh, not only so uh, special because hopefully someone who maybe has that experience or is from that culture uh, can uh, can hear and, and know that we did that research to honor them, um, but it also just. Uh, to me always operates on a subconscious level when there's that much intention that goes to being specific about something like that. And I wonder if you could chime in on that whole idea, Blitz, because of course um, your own background, I think probably had something to do with some of those choices. Yes, absolutely. Um, yes. I mean, specifically as, as Chris said, you know, um, you know, understanding, the specificities of a tribe allows you to kind of, you know, uh, be authentic, right? But I, but that, but that also expanded. I've been living in Georgia for over ten years, and so, like, you know, I also understand what you know Southern life is, you know, and and so even when I got this job, I mean, you talked about geography and location. I mean, I spent a lot of time, you know, driving the length and breadth of Georgia, looking for those locations, you know, finding that, that beach, you know, um, um, you know, finding that town, you know, Grantville, which became, you know, pretty much our one-stop shop. We shot everything in that town, you know, and, you know, in a swamp where Sugar Avery's barge comes up. I mean, these were all really incredible places. And I think the more specific you are, the more universal, I believe, you know, because ultimately we're just, we're telling these human stories and, 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 and the more we can hone in on a specific place, specific time, the more the world, you know, people who may not even be related or tangential to the culture can relate. And so specificity is very important, but also, you know, it also was about, you know, um, asking ourselves, what are some of the elements that survive today. We know all of this is on a continuum. You know, what kids uh, create today with music and dance isn't something that just comes out of thin air. It's a, it's an, it's inherited. Sometimes it's, it's so deep, they can't even trace it, you know, but, but, but I think that for us, it was also important that everybody knew that these reference points are going to be important um, in, 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 in telling this story again, my own experience as a kid growing up in Ghana, inurmed by cinema and its potential and possibilities, is kind of what I always ask myself. And I'll tell you what: the scene, for instance, of Celie and Sugar Avery in the movie theater, you know, that was not in the script when I got it. But I, I was asking myself, what are all the things that are all mind blowing? Well, at least to me, when I was a kid, you know, um, you know, radio was mind blowing to me. I didn't know how it worked, you know, or, you know, a record player. Like, where did it, where did the sound come from? So, you know, when Sugar, when Celie winds that gramophone and her mind expands into this giant gramophone, that was me as a kid. I, I imagined everything, you know, in, in a grand way. When I was a kid and, you know, there weren't many cinema houses, so my family never went to the movies. That was not a thing we did. But there were evangelicals that would come and show movies in the park for free. And, um, you know, you finish your chores early because you want to go sit outside and watch a movie, you know, a movie. And they often showed, um, the last temptation of, of Christ, which, which either, either time I had no idea was a Martin Scorsese movie. So I always say, you know, yes, the evangelicals succeeded in converting me, but 
to cinema of all places, you know, <laughs> um, 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 I, you know, it, re it really was mind blowing, you know, watching a movie at that scale projected in, in, in open air cinema, you know, and, and the wild thing was it was dubbed in our local language. You know, so there goes, you know, William Defoe is Jesus Christ speaking in my local language. It was mind boggling. I'd never, I didn't even know how it worked. I just knew that my mind expanded by seeing that and going, whatever that is, I want to be a part of it. I mean, down the line, of course, I find out it's a Martin Scorsese movie written by Paul Schrader. I go, my goodness, these guys did Taxi Driver. Marty did, you know, uh, um, Goodfellas. I mean, he, he makes gangster movies. The guy who made... A Jesus Christ movies makes gangster movies. It was mind blowing. But um, so when Celia and Suge, you know, go into the movie theater, for me, that was a moment of my own mind being expanded by this medium. And Celie can find through that image of cinema herself and, and how to love and who to love and her feelings for Suge grow. But that was me as a kid just being so enormous by these, these mediums, you know, uh, photography, uh, 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 which, which is why when we push into, into Suge Avery's photograph, it comes alive. That was me as a kid, just imagining what these, you know, these photos we had in our albums as, you know, as a kid, what the worlds behind them were, because most of them were taken before I was born, right? And then, you know, like I said, the gramophone, I mean, we had a record player at home and I lived for that thing, you know? And the same is true for, uh, for cinema. So all these big moments of expansion for, for, for Sealy, you know, in a way, I mean, they say, you know, the artist always puts a piece of themselves in the work. And that was what it was for me, uh, asking myself, how did my mind expand as a kid and, and who was curious about the world and how would it work for Celie, who is doing the same thing? Yes, she's escaping abuse and it's all, but it was all the same thing. All of it was escapism and how you build that in your head first before you can actually achieve it in real life. So, Chris, we, we reached the point where you're ready to record the final score. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about where you recorded and 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 maybe any special memories, what it was like uh, to be there and how big the orchestra was. We recorded in L.A., here in L.A., at Warner Brothers on the Eastwood scoring stage. And, you know, it's always so special. I think for this one, it felt the thing that felt so special is how many musicians felt honored to also be a part of this movie and to have a few musicians that played on the original like that to me felt like such an incredible moment um, that they were able to have this full circle moment for themselves in their career. Um, and, you know, we I work always work with my contractor, Peter Rodder, to make sure that the room is as diverse as possible. And so, so many people um, in that space have such a special uh, place in their heart for the original Alice Walker book and the, and the original movie. And so again, for them to be a part of this, it felt um, really beautiful. You know, when it was all said and done, the the largest iteration, we have over 100 musicians. You know, we had some cues that only had a handful of musicians, but there are, 
some of those big, huge moments that that uh, get to about a hundred or a little bit more than that uh, musicians, especially when we layered in um, other parts of the ensemble that aren't in the traditional orchestra. So it was um, uh, a lot of fun to to have that much range uh, with uh, these amazing musicians. Blitz, were you present for the recordings and what are your memories of that experience? I'd never been in a real scoring suite. You know, my first film, I scored it myself with, with my band of, 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 I don't know, five people, maybe six. So this was a treat, you know, and, you know, I, I, I always love to, to watch artists work and, 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 and Chris and his team are just stellar. You know, his entire team, um, our um, conductor, um, in, 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 in incredible, Fabrizio Mancinelli, I think it's how you say his last name. Um, he was fantastic. And, and again, what I do remember is just, as Chris said, how honored these players were to play this music and, and, to, and to connect with such an important sacred piece of, of art, which is the, the color purple. And it, it, it really reminds, reminded me how expansive this property is and, and how important it is that we are good stewards and bastions of it. Um, and, and, and it was very, very important uh, uh, for me. I, I also remember, uh, I enjoyed the massive scale, but I, I really more than anything enjoyed watching Chris alone on his upright piano playing those more intimate cues. They were incredible. And, and, you know, I know the, our movie always has oscillated between the epic and the intimate. It's kind of what it's always been. Um, and so, you know, it was great to get a taste of all of that. And, and I, I have some great recordings, Chris, of just you in there playing. Uh, and I can't wait for this movie to come out so I can start putting that stuff out. But it, but it, it, it was truly a treat for me. Um, and again, you know, to, to see these beautiful images we had created and watch, watch an epic orchestra play in real time to these pictures. Cause I could see, they can't turn around and see the pictures, but I can see them and the pictures. So it was, it was truly, I was, I was like a kid in a candy store. I mean, he knows I was like literally everywhere with my camera. I was like, I mean, I'm sure the musicians were like, who is this guy? Get him out of here. Yeah, and I was tiptoeing around in my socks, just trying to get angles and, you know, because, again, it's never happened for me, you know, and, and, and I also don't like to be too cool for school. I like to just, when my mind is blown, I like for my mind to be blown. And it was mind-blowing watching how many brilliant musicians came in to play uh, Chris's wonderful score. Well, what a treat this has been for to have the two of you talking about the music for The Color Purple. It's a great project. It's a great film. Uh, thank you both for being with us today. Chris Bowers and Blitz Bazawule. Thanks, John. Such a pleasure. Thank you for having us. Many thanks to Chris and Blitz for joining us on the podcast today. And thanks to John for yet another fantastic interview. And an extra special thanks to our friends at Warner Brothers and Amblin Entertainment. For helping put this conversation together. The Color Purple is now playing in Dolby Cinemas, where you can experience it in Dolby Vision and Dolby Atmos. You can find a link to tickets, as always, in our show notes. If you'd like even more conversations with inspiring artists and filmmakers about how they use technology to tell their stories, please be sure you are subscribed to us, the Dolby Institute podcast. 
You can find links to our show on all the major podcasting platforms, including the video version on YouTube in our show notes, or you can simply search for Dolby wherever you get your podcasts. If you're curious to know more about the Dolby Institute, head on over to dolbyinstitute.com. There you'll find information about all of our programs. You can access the entire library of episodes of this podcast, and you can sign up for our mailing list. Until next time, thanks again for joining us. This is the Dolby Institute podcast. I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Our producer and editor is Michael Coleman. Our executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry, with additional editing by Matt Nixon. Thanks for joining us.